0: Today's lesson comes from Psalms 127, which is in the middle of this uh, collection of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 to 134. The Psalms of Ascent are my favorite in the Psalms because uh, in the ancient world, you would make a yearly pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was set up on a hill, and so you would go up to Jerusalem, both spiritually, but also physically, geographically. And so hence the name, the Psalms of Ascent, because you physically had to ascend to uh, Jerusalem. And while you were on the road, you would sing these these songs and these prayers with your family and your friends. I think of it like a mixtape or a playlist for a road trip. So that's kind of what the Psalms of Ascent are, 120 to 134. We titled all of our Psalms to be really practical, because these are like 3,000-year-old prayers or songs that are meant to be super practical for your life, and you know, admittedly, we often preach sermons and you hear it and then you forget about it. But I'm convinced that these sermons from Psalms—they're meant to be investments in your life. We hope that you'll take these Psalms, you'll bury them down for days where you'll need them. And so we've titled them: When you, you know, need protection or when you need forgiveness. Today is when you are building a home and a city. All of us have a home, whether you're married or not, whether you have children or not, you have a home. When we all live in a city, God's called us to participate in our neighborhoods. And so this psalm is very, very important as most of us are in that season of life in one way, shape, or form. We are building our home, our family, our relationships, our city. So Psalms 127, um, turn to it. It's page 518 if you want to use the Bible around. It's just five verses Still going to preach an hour. It's just five verses. Kidding, kidding, kidding. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives... To his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of general thoughts on this psalm. Um, there are there's no prayer and there's no worship or adoration in this psalm. It's kind of a weird psalm. Most of the psalms have this flow in it. Um, you know, you're, you're describing who God is, you're describing your situation, you're asking for help, you're praising God. There's a general like five-point flow to most psalms. This psalm doesn't fit the bill. It reads more like a proverb or like a spiritual fortune cookie. Um, so Psalms 127 is a little bit different. But here's the big idea of 127. Um, and a lot of times it's made about kids or it's made about family, but underneath all of that, here's the big idea of 127. No amount of human sacrifice or toil can accomplish much unless God's blessing is upon the work and the workers. Think about that. This is the big idea of Psalms 127. You could translate this into your career, your job, your relationships, your church, whatever, any domain of life, it doesn't matter how hard you work, how little sleep you get, how often you burn uh, the candle at both ends, doesn't matter. Unless God's blessing is upon the work and unless God's blessing is upon you, it's in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord guards the city. Really, this is a study of the power of God. Often, Psalms 127 is like the family psalm or the kids' psalm, right? For good reason. That's the, the clear uh, distinction or um, the clear example that's given in Psalms 127. But Psalms 127 is all about God's power. It's all about God's power. I'm reminded of when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is what Psalms 127 is about. Um, I, uh, probably a great moment of discipleship came in my life years ago. A guy who was a disciple of me named, named Eric Pfeiffer. Uh, he told me this phrase that really changed my life and changed the way that we, I look at things. But he said, Drew, you can only go where the grace of God goes before you. That's it. And if you try to go where God's grace hasn't gone and prepared the way, it's like walking into the Amazon jungle barefisted without a machete and without a path. Like it's just going to be bloody and messy and slow, and you're going to get hurt. You can only go on the paths where God's grace has prepared. And it's so true. Like we all have things in our lives that we try to do, and it's like scratching and clawing in the biblical word to be striving. And it's just clearly like that's, God hasn't gone and made it easy. This is like Ephesians 2.10. He's created good works for you to walk in, and all you got to do is walk in them. You don't have to strive. You don't have to scratch and claw. Yeah, there's, there's like um, it's work, it's effort. But where God's grace has gone and prepared the way, it's pretty easy. That's how our church started seven years ago, six and a half years ago. Eric, Amanda, Sammy, Christopher, Kayla, Shar and I were at the park, and we just said, "Lord, whatever you're doing, we want to jump on that bandwagon. Like we don't want to we don't want to ask you to bless what we're doing. We want to know what are you doing. We'd like to bless that. And here you are, six and a half years later. This is what God's been doing." Uh, No manufacturing, no manipulation, just like, Lord, what do you do? And we want to follow that. That's God's grace, unless the Lord builds the church, right? Unless the Lord watches over the church, okay? This is the heart of this psalm. Um, So let's break it down. Uh, It's kind of symmetrical. There's verses 1 and 2, and then you can, um, we'll look at verses 3 through 5 in a bit. Verses 1 and 2, unless the Lord builds the house, God's a builder. I love that. I'm a builder. I like tools. I really love tools. I go to Home Depot just for fun, just to just to be around the tools and the smell of soda. I, I like building stuff. And when I see that, unless the Lord builds the house, I'm like, Amen. Yeah, like I love this image of God being a builder. After the resurrection, if you know this story, I think it's uh, in the I think it's John's gospel that tells it. I can't remember. Um, but uh, the boys come and they look at the empty tune and then they leave and Mary's still there. And Mary turns around and she's, she's the first person to see the resurrected Lord. Do you remember um, who she thinks the resurrected Jesus is? She mistakes him. You know, no. a gardener. What is it about God's character that Mary thinks the resurrected Christ is this like blue collar, get your hands dirty in creation? She thought he was a gardener. I love that. There's uh, so many reasons why I look. But Mary thought Jesus was a gardener. He loves to create. He loves to tend to creation. This is in his nature. All right, I'm going to do a little test. We're going to do a three-part quiz. You ready? Don't fail. Please don't fail me. Um, the first three words in the book of Genesis, the Bible opens. What's the first three words? Say it on the count of three. One, One, two, three. Good job. A plus. In the beginning. Okay? Let's see if you know the fourth word. The first three words are in the beginning. What's the fourth word? Say all four words together. One, two, three. In the beginning, God. God. Okay, let's see if you know the five. Can we do five? Can you do the first five words? One, two, three. In the beginning, God there you go. Yeah. Yeah, this is it. This is who God is. In the beginning, when? God who? was he doing? He was creating. He was building. The Genesis account. Is really a work journal. Here's what God did on day one. Here's what God did on day two. Here's what he did on day three. Like God starts this whole thing off building, working, setting order in the midst of chaos. This is what God has been doing. This is what God is doing. This is what he will be doing. At the end of the story, at the end of Revelation, there's a city. So the, the, the Bible opens with a garden and it ends with things have progressed to a holy city. The great little thing, how God goes from guard in the city. Great stuff. This is who God is and what he's up to. You know why we love the Pearl Brewery? I love the Pearl Brewery. You know you know why we love the Pearl Brewery because it's a billion dollar sense of place. It's this place that was been masterfully designed down to the details with seemingly no expense spared. I think they've yet to make money for human flourishing, for life, for eating, for drinking, for playing, for sleeping, for living and working. And, and uh, there's something about underneath all that. Next time you go to the pearl and you look at all, all this stuff there, think of how that's God's heart. He creates spaces for people to have life and peace and wholeness, for people to flourish. This is What's in the beginning? In the, be- God, in the beginning, God created a sense of place for man and woman to dwell and to flourish and to multiply and to do their job and to be responsible. So every time I go to the Pearl, I, I think in the back of my head sometimes, like, the reason why I like this isn't just because it's beautiful, because behind it, this is what God has been after all along, to create beautiful, functional places for us. There's like 13 architects in here. I can't believe you haven't said amen. I'm disappointed. But God's creative. I'm, I'm harping on this for a reason, okay? You know what the, the worst thing about critics and skeptics is not their negativity, because that, that's like hard to stomach. But the worst part about people who are always criticizing and tearing things down is it's, it's not the nature of who God is. God creates. He doesn't destroy. Um, it takes no wisdom and it takes no strength to tear something down. Like, honestly, this is not to um, be condescending towards, um, like, minimum wage workers, but you could put a minimum wage worker in a crane, and in an hour they could tear down a building that took a team of people years to engineer, to architect, and to construct. It takes no amount of godliness or wisdom to tear something down. That's pretty easy that's like the worst part about being a critic or a skeptic or a cynic is it's just not godly and that's not his nature the three basic christian virtues are faith hope and love constructive feelings and emotions not destructive god builds unless the lord builds the house now um, we read this today and uh you know we think of like home depot or something there's this great hint To, uh, there's two really hints in in Psalms 127. The first is to Solomon. It actually says it's of Solomon. He wrote it. And unless the Lord builds the house, and you can kind of think, is Solomon talking about building the temple, the house of the Lord? But if you're a Jew and you're on the ancient road to Jerusalem, your mind did not go to Solomon. Your mind went to Nehemiah, who lived 500 years after Solomon. This whole chapter, these first two verses particularly, reek of Nehemiah. Um, because Nehemiah was called to rebuild the city. God called Nehemiah to go back to repair the city walls. The protection had been broken. And then there wasn't a whole lot of houses for the Jews. And so Nehemiah is like calling his major role in, his, in life was to go and rebuild the city and rebuild the houses for the people of God. And if you know the story of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah 4, 17 through 18 it says this, let us put it up here. It says, the laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. Um, one way that people say this is that the people who rebuilt the wall and rebuilt the houses in Nehemiah's day, in one hand, they had a trowel. They rebuilding the wall. In the other hand, they had a sword. Charles Spurgeon named his publication, The Sword and Trowel, off of this. And it's this idea of in one arm, you are building with a trowel. And in the other arm, you are protecting with a sword. And they're building the wall. So you would know that story of Nehemiah. And you would know that story as an ancient Jew. And as you're going up to the holy city to see the house of the Lord that was built. And you said, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, you would be thinking of this Nehemiah story. Hope that was worth getting out of bed for. Building in one hand, protecting, they go together. Who builds something beautiful and doesn't protect it? There's at least four areas of building the psalm is talking about. The first is the temple. Uh, You know, there's a hint to Solomon. And I think of of today, the church, um, Jesus said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail. The church is simply... The gathering together of the living stones, you and me. The Bible doesn't call us bricks. A brick is like man-made and all the same shape and form, and you just stack them on, and there's no personality. The Bible says you're living stones, which means like some of us are like rounder than others. Mm -hmm. Some of us have sharper edges than others. Some of us are smooth. Not me. Mm -hmm. I know which rock I am. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And God puts together this beautiful mosaic of living stones, and he creates a church. And when you just gather all the living stones together, you get a church. This is why, one of the reasons why we're called the gathering, or the gathering of living stones. Paul says, you are God's building, you are God's field. This is one area that God is building. Second, the city. Um, third, business. Often businesses were called the firm or the house, and it's this, this collection of people And there's a way to build a business. Some of you are business owners. And there's a way to build your business that doesn't honor the Lord. And there's a way to build your business in which the Lord is like the senior partner and is the the one directing all the values. There's a way to to build a business that's godly. And then also, the obvious is the home. People marry. They seek to marry. They begin the process of building a home and their family. Now, next half, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage or an inheritance or a treasure from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Now this Psalm like seems disjointed. Like I said, it's symmetrical and it's weird to go from verses one and two is about like building and protecting. Like it's like, there's sawdust and power tools and sheetrock dust and Home Depot and then like Simply Safe Security and like motion lights and guard dogs and then you go to Babies R Us and diapers. It doesn't seem like it connects. Like how how do we go from building and protecting to babies? It it just seems disjointed. Um, we read that in the English. In the Hebrew, there's this really cool. Uh, thing that most of us in the 21st century America don't get. The word for builder in verse 1 and the word for children in verse 3 sound very similar in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for builder sounds like this, bana, and the Hebrew word for children sounds like ban. So bana and ban. And so this is poetry. So if you're reading this in the Hebrew and you read Uh, About a builder and then about a child, those words sound just like one another and they play off one another. So there's kind of this literary poetic thing that Solomon is doing here. To us, it reads like they're disjointed. The last part of verse 2 is pretty cool. I love it, especially on Daylight Savings Time. Thank you, Jesus. He gives his beloved sleep. I know some people complain about Daylight Savings Time. I'm thankful for the, the hour that I got yesterday. There's this connection between verse 2, he gives his beloved sleep, and then verse 3, there's a a Greek Orthodox scholar named Patrick Henry Weird, and here's what he talks about on this. Uh, I'm just going to read it because I can't say it better. He says, It is in the bed, after all, in the context of rest and sleep, that children are conceived. Thus, God's great gift, the gift of children, appears to have more to do with human rest than with human toil. There is no room for Planned Parenthood in this psalm. Conceived in the context of rest, children are purely the gift of God. These are the arrows of a man's quiver, says our psalm, waxing ever bolder in poetic language. They will be his stay and support when he sits and deliberates with his neighbors in the gate of that city, over which the Lord maintains a constant vigilance. This is what it means to construct a home. pretty good. Now, I want to bring you back to that idea that you are traveling with your friends and family to Jerusalem. Um, And it kind of seems weird that in the Psalms of Ascent would be this psalm. Like, why is this, you know, seven psalms in? And it was because the Jewish husband and wife viewed um, taking your children to pilgrimage to the holy city as part of discipling your children. And so they would sing this psalm with all of their aunts and uncles, and there's like 20 to 70 people in this caravan on the way to Jerusalem. And they used that as an opportunity, said, the Lord wants to build our house, the Lord wants to train our children, and they would te- they'd use this psalm to teach their children this is how the Lord builds us. This is how He protects us. It's really cool. They, they saw it as a discipleship moment. Now, there's something in here that's pretty remarkable uh, when, you, when you consider that this is 3,000 years old. It says children are a gift, their treasure, their fruit, their reward, their arrows. Like that's not super countercultural today. Um, but cuz we live in the age of Walt Disney where basically especially in America like the number one sin of idolatry is our children like we idolize and worship our children and put so much pressure on them we live in this age of Walt Disney but 3000 years ago people did not look at children the way that we idolize them today jesus spoke of children He used children as an illustration for salvation. He said, "Unless you come to me like these little children, you will enter the kingdom of heaven." What we got to know is there was never a rabbi in the history of Judaism that used children as an example for salvation. When Jesus used that image of "unless you become like one of these," children were were viewed uh, often, especially in the Gentile world, as this nuisance, this burden, a threat to the estate. They view children how most people view a homeless schizophrenic under the bridge. Just like, out of sight, out of mind. I don't wanna get involved, like don't bother me. Like that's how, I mean, the children come to Jesus and the disciples are like trying to shoo them away, which is why Jesus says, let the little little children come to me, okay? So Jesus radically shapes our view of how we see children, which is pretty cool. It's, I'm a Disney guy, so I love this next line. Jesus spoke of a spiritual kingdom available to kids before Walt Disney dreamt of a magic kingdom just for kids. Pretty cool. I like that. It's one of our favorite places. But you can make the argument, Walt Disney had this vision, a magical kingdom for kids to run and play in because Jesus first said that there is a spiritual kingdom for kids. Let them come, let them play, let them find fullness in life. Come on, you got to amen that. That's good stuff. Good stuff. Here's why it's countercultural. In the Gentile world, in Roman law, there was a Roman law that said you had seven days to decide whether you wanted to keep your baby or not. You could, at day seven, take, this is what would happen. I talked about it a little bit last week. Is You could take your baby to the city trash heap and leave it there. And Roman law provided cover for that. Um, usually people did it because the baby was the wrong, the wrong gender. You can guess what gender often was thrown away. That's how the Gentile Roman world viewed kids, is if they don't fit into your plan, just throw them in the garbage. You have seven days to do it. You could legally do that. This is where orphanages sprung up from. Here in Psalms 127, in the midst of that culture that throws kids away, it says, no, 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 no. Children are a treasure. Children are an inheritance. They are a gift. These are the three uh, images. It says treasure. Second fruit. Third is what a lot of people know is um, that they're like Arrows. And what you read into that is they are purposeful weapons. Um, here's the thing about kids. Kids are arrows regardless. Uh, if you have a bad kid, they're an arrow. Whose heart do they prick? Yours. If you have a good kid, whose, whose heart do they prick? The enemies. like Regardless of the three parents, regardless, your children will be arrows. The question is, what direction will you fling them in? And arrows don't grow themselves. I think, like, Shari and I, our great responsibility is we got two very energetic arrows that we're trying to straighten out every day, you know, like, keep them straight, and our job as parents is to take the arrows, to care for them, to straighten them, to pull them back, and one day we're going to release them into the world. That's the job of, our, of, of parents. They're not meant to stay in the quiver in the basement until they're 30. I'm a millennial. I can make that joke. I think so. Parents, here's a great question. Like right now, if you got kids, where are you aiming them? Like, do you like what I love about uh, Michael and Bethany and Justin Jarre? They've got these targets. Like they want them to be joyful, secure in their identity, honest. Um, Justin kept saying rich and famous. I'm like I don't know if that's necessarily the target, but. <sighs> Just you know, if that happens, let them know where they were dedicated, and we'll t- make sure you teach them about tithing if they're rich and famous. I kid, sort of. But you should you should remember that. W- where you parents? Where are you aiming your kid? If even if you don't have kids, where did your parents aim you? That's a great question. Like, where did your parents aim you? This is our job as parents. Now, here's the reality: um, is that. There's often in our world strong desires to get married. And there's often in our world strong desires to have children, and sometimes it doesn't happen. Uh, I was opened up to this when Shari and I had a miscarriage. Uh, right at that same time, we had some friends who got pregnant. And then when they dedicated their baby at church that day, while we're still struggling with getting pregnant, it was a very tough day as our friends were celebrating life and we're still mourning loss. It was tough is tough Um, that day opened my eyes as a pastor I'm thankful for that day Um, never knew Mother's Day was so hard for people and that's just the reality as we read this psalm and and there is still a tinge in there um, of longing for the Lord to build to bring that husband or that wife longing for the Lord to give children yeah and uh, what I, if you're in that moment, and if you're in that spot, and you're single, and you're you're just you're ready to settle down, and you want a spouse, yes, I, I know that feeling. And whether you're married, and, and you want kids, or, or you can't have kids, or whatever, what I want to encourage you is to see this psalm as an invitation to continue to, to let the Lord be the Lord of those desires. There is a way for us to get our hands, this is what Abraham and Sarah did, is they For 100 years, they didn't have kids, and they manufactured, and they got into trouble, you know? Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord guards the city, unless the Lord gives, yes, it's the Lord. This is all about the power of God. Is it simple and cute? No, it is, of course, messy, which is why we have the Psalms. I want to encourage you, if you struggle with that, you're in good company. Abraham and Sarah were in that for 100 years, struggling with infertility, Elizabeth and Zechariah in the New Testament, same thing. And it took a miracle to bring kids to them. You're also in the company of Jesus. And I mean this seriously. Jesus wasn't married, Jesus didn't have children. And he revolutionized the way we see relationships, he revolutionized the way we see women as a man. Pretty incredible. He revolutionized the way we see children. And God used a single man, Jesus, to change the way even our culture 2,000 years sees this stuff. He shows us that you don't have to have the American dream in order to fulfill God's purpose for your life. I, I wish I had better news that was more comfortable to you than that. But Jesus shows us that there is a way to look to the Father and to say, Father, I want you to build my life. I want you to protect my life. I want you to lead me. And I want to do whatever it is you say, whatever it is I see you doing. And when you walk in that, even if it ends to the cross, which is not how any of us would design our life to end, there is an amazing amount of life and freedom that happens on the other side of that. So I offered that to you as an encouragement. I know that's not easy. Here's the gospel. We're no longer slaves to sin because God has done one of the greatest building projects of all kinds. He has built a bridge in Christ Jesus to his presence so that we, through Christ, will be his children, the arrows in his quiver, doing battle against the enemy for him. It's really cool to see how, through the gospel, God has done what this verse is talking about for him. Romans eight fourteen says this for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call him Abba Father or Daddy, for his spirits his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. As we come to the table this morning, I want us to turn our attention away. And you can, if you want to keep your attention on the practical level, but I, want to, I want to invite you to turn your attention away to what does it mean for you to be God's kid? What does it mean for you to be the arrow in his quiver, the reward to him? And it's only possible by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we could ever do unless God builds the house, unless God, like this is all God's work. It's not our work. So we can come to the table today celebrating the fact We don't have to work for our salvation. We don't have to engineer. We don't have to build our salvation. We don't have to work or engineer our home, our marriage, our children. We don't have to engineer all these things. We simply get to respond to the great work that God's been doing all along. I want to encourage you to step in that this morning. Father, thank you for the good news that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. You are the builder of your church. Before you formed us and fashioned us in our mother's womb, you knew us. And out of all the wonderful things that you have built, God, we recognize and confess that you have built us you have fashioned and designed and formed and created us for relationship with you. And after that, you give us a responsibility to do battle for you. And you have aimed us and released us and sent us at various places against the enemy. Lord, help us to never lose sight we are first your children who are no longer slaves to sin. Thank you, Jesus.